Turkey has started bombing Syria. So what does this new phase in the conflict mean? America appears to have turned its back on the Kurds. So where does this leave current and future alliances? Also, could Trump be about to pull out of another East-West treaty? I'm Kate Jabot, and this is SITREP. Now I am in Al-Sharia neighborhood. I am in Al-Sharia neighborhood, which is a Christian neighborhood, which is my neighborhood. And now they bombed a Christian house. Uh, the wife got killed, and the man with his uh, kids, they got injured. And we can see this is his shop and everything has been destroyed. I can say like, whole, 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 whole his house been destroyed here. They are doing this just to let the civilians leave the region, leave the city. That was the Syrian journalist Barakan Ahmed speaking from Kamshishli, one of the cities on the border with Turkey in northeast Syria. It was targeted in an airstrike last night by Turkey. The Turkish offensive began yesterday, shortly after President Trump controversially withdrew troops and support from Kurdish fighters, US allies who'd helped destroy the IS caliphate. It's caused international outrage from those who say it's given the Turkish president an open hand to use force in Syria. Turkey maintains it's clearing a terrorist corridor. Well, I'm joined by Bob Celia, Conservative MP who sits on the Commons Foreign Affairs Committee and who served with the Kurds in Iraq, and Mike Pregent, a former US intelligence officer who's worked closely with the Kurdish forces in Iraq, and as usual, our defence analyst Christopher Lee. Hello to all of you. Uh, Mike Pregent, uh, just explain what is Turkey's problem with the Kurds? <clears throat> the, uh, the Kurds in northern Syria are part of the YPG. And that's an extension of, of the PKK, which Turkey views as its 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 uh, largest terrorist threat. So, what the argument from the Turkish side is that they are trying to keep the weapons that the United that the U.S. military uh, gave to the YPG from coming into Turkey to kill Turkish citizens. Uh, that's their argument. Uh, the the problem is we worked closely with the YPG. Uh, they were the command and control structure for the Syrian Defense Forces. And if you remember the Kobani uh, attacks during the day, during daytime where ISIS was literally rolling tanks and firing artillery in broad daylight at Kobani while Turkish tanks were in overwatch not doing a thing, we realized then that Turkey views these Kurdish fighters uh, as more of a threat than they do ISIS. Mm-mm. And that's when everything changed for us. And Bob Seeley, has President Trump's decision to pull some U.S. forces back, has it given the Turkish president a free hand or, or would this kind of thing have happened anyway? Uh, if I understand correctly, I, I think Turkey was keen to do this. But I mean, I think U.S. opposition, powerful U.S. opposition to it would have prevented it happening. Um, uh, and I think by this, um, uh, by allowing uh, Edwin to, to move, I, I think, yeah, I mean, I think President Trump has unfortunately destabilised uh, that part of the world, and, and I think I, I think there are a series of very negative dynamics. One is the security of ISIS prisoners. Secondly, is if he if um, the Turks now uh, forcibly or otherwise push Syrian Arab um, refugees back into Kurdish areas of Syria, I think that creates a lot of potential for ethnic division and ethnic violence there. Uh, and I think thirdly, along that um, border of northeast Syria and southern Turkey, you then are going to be threatened with an escalation of violence. 
uh, as the Kurds seek to fight back. Christopher Lee, how do you see this week's developments? Well, the first thing, we're back to this idea that the President Trump makes up foreign policy without running it by anybody in Washington first. Um, but it also has to be recommended that to believe that Trump had planned to do this sort of thing anyway. Um, <clears throat> the, he, he hadn't, or America had not said that the support to the YPG, that's the Kurds that are based in Syria, was not open-ended. And so, you know, should, should that re be reflected upon? And the other thing is that, the, that America, United Kingdom, most other countries will go along with the Turkish president's view of the PKK. Now, they're the Kurds in in, in, in Turkey, uh, who they think are absolute, they are terrorists, but they don't have that same view of the YPG. And there's another side of it. Uh, there is this, you know, the, the recurring thing that he says, well, we really ought to get out of these wars. And most importantly, uh, he says this is Trump's war. Uh, this is not Trump's war, rather, the, uh, and it's the previous uh, Obama uh, war, and we shouldn't have been in it. Mike Pregent, uh, Bob C was alluding there to the destabilizing, destabilizing effect of this move. Uh, do you think Donald Trump has made a big strategic mistake here? Uh, I, I believe it's a, it's a huge mistake. Uh, destabilizing northern Syria, allowing a victory for Assad, Iran, Russia and ISIS is not what you want to happen regardless of a 2020 election that's coming up. Remember, President Trump criticized Barack Obama for leaving Iraq too soon and giving rise to this security gap that, that led to ISIS. President Trump's doing the same thing. The biggest problem I have with this is that the U.S. special operator on the ground or the U.S. advisor on the ground working with the YPG has worked with the YPG for five years now uh, to, to basically uh, take territory away from ISIS. ISIS is not defeated. It simply has had territory taken away. But because there haven't been large numbers of casualties, U.S. casualties in, in Syria, it's because of the YPG. And to have a YPG commander look at an American as the American's driving away because your president just said, you're gonna allow Turkey to roll in and conduct an operation against terrorists. Erdogan's not gonna conduct an operation against Jabhat al-Nusra or ISIS. He views the terrorist as that U.S. ally that we've been working with for five years. And this is, it, it's a shameful act if you're a U.S. serviceman. But for a lot of the academia here in D.C., Turkey's a NATO ally and the YPG were a temporary ally. So that's how they're tr trying to reconcile this, this mm. mistake. But Bob Seeley, how do you think the U.K. should be reacting and playing its hand in this? Well, I mean, I think one of the things that our government has been stressing is the extent to which uh, Turkey is firstly a NATO ally, secondly, frankly, in the security relationship right now because of what's happening in the Middle East. Uh, we gain far more from the intelligence relationship with Turkey than they do um, uh, from us. So we, we do have to tread slightly carefully. It's also true to say that the Kurds were never... You know, th there's not going to be an eternal partnership because at some point... Uh, Kurdish Syria will have to become part of Syria practically again. But you would have expected us, first, uh, most importantly, to stand by the Kurdish Syrians until such time as they had mm. negotiated a federal structure within a new Syrian state, which they felt comfortable with, and then you'd scale down. Uh, but secondly, you know, like 
the uh, American uh, American friend here. I also served with with I, mean, I served alongside the Peshmerga a little bit in northern Iraq, and I have to say, uh, I, I would feel embarrassed by uh, the actions of, of 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 this government. In fact, the coalition, mm. uh, because they were very hospitable hosts, and frankly, they were impressive fighters, both the men and the women. And this is not the way you treat allies. I think it is way too transactional in a part of the world where memories are long and it takes a long time to build up relationships. Well, well, the whole matter was raised in the House of Commons this week and the question now is being asked how you can trust America and by association the UK as an ally. Here's Chair of the Commons Defence Committee, Dr Julian Lewis. I think the implication of your question is quite clear and it's quite right, Kate. Uh, who is going to trust us? Who is want, going to want to work with us in the future if... The moment they have fulfilled their role, which was to help us defeat ISIL Daesh, or let's put it the other way around, that we were helping them defeat ISIL Daesh, as soon as they've done that, we then throw them to the wolves. This really is utterly disgraceful. Uh, even to contemplate, and I have to say, I was rather underwhelmed by the tone being struck from the dispatch box, uh, which was all about, well, uh, you know, we will say to the Turks, please don't do that. I think we need to speak to the Turks in somewhat stronger terms than that. Turkey is a very important NATO ally, and for decades it was trademarked by the fact that here you had a powerful Muslim state that did not allow religion to intrude into politics. That's sadly not the case now under this president, President Erdogan. Uh, he has been no friend of the West in relation to the fight against Islamist terrorism. He has locked up thousands of people uh, in his own country for nothing other than political reasons. Uh, and if we give him the green light to turn on our allies in Syria, then we should hang our heads in shame. And what's more, that's not just my opinion on the conservative benches, and there were many others on the conservative benches who spoke in similar terms, but it was virtually unanimous across the House of Commons. The SNP spokesman said much the same thing. The Labour spokesman, the Shadow Foreign Secretary, said much the same thing. I've never known there to be such unanimity on a Middle Eastern question of this sort, which is normally very divisive in Westminster, as there was in the treatment of this particular issue. That was Dr Julian Lewis. Well, Michael Pregent, that's a very British view we've just heard, but how deep in US intelligence and military areas is the Trump concept that the whole world is another Vietnam and best not get into it? Well, you, you, can't, you can't leave conflict uh, without winning, and that's what we're, we're learning. Uh, we keep exiting Iraq and other places, or at least telling our enemies that we're going to leave, and all it does is keep us there. Uh, anytime you telegraph to your enemy that you have no interest in winning, uh, you end up failing, and that's what this looks like. This is going to be hard for U.S. special operators and intel officers in the future to to build relationships when there are such recent examples of betrayal uh, with the Iraqi Kurds in Iraq, uh, with the Sunnis from the awakening of 2007 in the surge, and now the 2017 referendum and now the 2019. But we have to remember that Secretary Tillerson also told Erdogan when his forces were moving on Afrin that just be careful to not kill civilians when you target uh, the YPG. 
because the U.S. had a policy to allow Turkey to hit the YPG west of the Euphrates. This is the first time we've said, go ahead and uh, attack our ally east of the Euphrates. And that, that's just a, it's shameful. Uh, I, don't, I, I, I don't understand it, but I agree with uh, one, of the other, uh, one of the other gentlemen on this panel that this was going to happen at some point, but it, we should have allowed stability to take hold first before we decided to just uh, have them agree to tear down their fortified positions, promising them that we weren't going to mm. leave them. And as soon as they did that, we exited. Bob Seeley, um, yeah. what do you think um, might credibly happen next? Um, I suspect President Trump will be under a lot of pressure to tone down the rhetoric and therefore allow the US to pressure the Turks to minimise this activity and not to open up too wide a front. That's a, a positive outcome. A more negative outcome is that the Turks now push forward regardless or because the US, the US doesn't pressure them, uh, in which case I think you're looking at widespread Kurdish civilian casualties, uh, an upsurge in violence in southern Turkey, um, uh, some likely strained relationship between Westerners and uh, Western military maybe in northern Iraq, um, and just the potential for a very significant humanitarian crisis, uh, and as well as ethnic violence as um, Syrian Arabs are pushed into um, Syrian Kurdish territory by the by Turkey. Actually, we we've got to watch. Uh, uh, President Trump said he will tear if this went this happened. He was going to tear the economy of Turkey apart. Well, he said that before, uh, and he didn't, and he's going to row back on that to some extent. But also, we're talking about from our point of view. We really ought to remember that the Turkish president is playing to a home audience as well, and it's for his own stature and for what people expect, especially the relationship with the PKK, even though they may not be in Syria. Uh, and so he is going to press on. He's not going to say, well, we got there almost. Mm, we'll have to leave it there for now. Gentlemen, thank you very much. Bob Seeley, Michael Pregent, thank you for your time today. Sit rep with Still to come, the former head of the army wants protection for Northern Ireland veterans in next week's Queen's speech. And the Yom Kippur shooting, Germany's continuing nightmare. The American press are suggesting President Trump is about to bin yet another East-West treaty. It's called the Open Skies Treaty and it says Russians and Americans should be able to fly over and look over each other's territory and so lessen the chances of building undetected weapons. 34 nations have signed up to it in total, allowing them to carry out unarmed aerial surveillance flights over each other's territories. Jonathan Isle is International Director at the Royal United Services Institute. Jonathan, good to speak to you today. Um, what has Open Sky's value been exactly? Well, in essentially, it is a confidence-building measure. It allows countries uh, to create a climate whereby they could know with some level of certainty that certain facilities that they could overfly over certain facilities which they may consider uh, suspect of, uh, of a potential rival and be reassured that there's nothing untoward going there. It's important to remember that uh, these kind of confidence-building measures are just about the most difficult, the most delicate to put together in any arms control agreement. And why 
wiping it away is likely to be a major loss to the capabilities of the United States to uh, be reassured about what Russia is doing, but also vice versa to the capabilities of Russia to be reassured about American intent. Was it not a post-World War II bit of idealism, though? Uh, yes and no. Yes, in a sense that there was an assumption that uh, Russia will remain a very major power and that therefore these things are important. And Yes, in a sense that it was assumed that if you know what your rival is doing, it is possible somehow to reduce the chances of an accidental war or of a new arms race. But no, in a sense that uh, it would be lovely if the system was enhanced to other countries as well. And would have allowed for a set of measures uh, to, um, uh, to, to ascertain what countries are doing. The problem is, as always, with President Trump, that he assumes that these multilateral agreement are, agreements are a luxury rather than a necessity, and that he assumes that the United States can bear the brunt of what will happen thereafter because they will increase their satellite capability and therefore they wouldn't need anyone's permission to overfly the territory. Mm, Christopher Lee, you worked on this. Well, I did. Uh, on the, it was on the MX, it was an experimental uh, missile at Lathrop Wells in, uh, in, in the United States, in Nevada. And what we were told, uh, or what happened, is that the, the Russians, for example, were given uh, certain times when they say they would be flying over. And the missile was on a long, low loader, and it was put on, uh, on a track. And, of course, it went round the track, and so that the Russians would be able to see it. Um, but all sorts of stupid things were done, hopefully, to to upset the Russians. For example, we used to low, uh, we used to pull out the um, the air, let the air out in the truck tires. What? Uh, yeah, I promise this is true. So the tires would be f sort of flattened, and so the Why? well, because the Russians from their satellites and they had sideways aperture. As, uh, as satellites which could look sideways on so you got a better detail and they could see flattened tires they would think that the on the truck was the a loaded missile with a warhead uh, because hmm. the weight was lowering the tires but in fact there was nothing like that because we weren't far advanced with the MX missile development anyway so we're sitting around a bit of balsa wood so, so, so Jonathan Island that light perhaps not as transparent as it sets out to be Indeed. I mean, that is always the case. No country wants to have information leaked unless it's absolutely necessary. But I think the example that we just heard, which is sort of partly amusing, partly very serious, is also an indication that this kind of open skies agreement could be used to convey a particular message. So we wanted to convey a message that we had a capability that we didn't actually completely have at the time. Fair enough. But it was still a mechanism for conveying messages in a way that could have made the situation, the handling of the situation more predictable. I think the important thing to remember is that if he walks, if the American president walks away from the Open Skies Treaty, this will be another nail in the entire coffin of the arms control agreements, all of whom are now sort of melting away. We have very, very few of them in place at the moment. I tell you, there's another aspect of it. I mean, in fact, what the satellite, uh, the satellite was expected to see. Uh, you go over a certain area, you start to see a new railway line, you start to see car parking where there wasn't car parking on that 
be a stage before and you realize that something but something is going on and the other thing is a reminder that verification is still one of the hardest protocols put together in, in any arms control treaty and you have to have that sort of thing whether it's a, a, a long-range uh, missile treaty or even shipbuilding. Mm. Jonathan, I just want to pick up on something you just said um, about the melting away of a treaty, arms control treaty. Um, in your lifetime, how dangerous would you judge uh, the global security at the moment? Well, certainly what we see is um, a map that has the least sort of predictable arms control treaties in place since the 1960s, since the late 1960s. I mean, we have uh, not only the fact that most of the arms control treaties with, with Russia have now gone, uh, but also the fact that you've got China, which refuses to enter into any arms control negotiations with the United States. So when a sort of global inability to talk about arms control treaties. Now, it's a very big debate among, uh, among politicians and professional security experts whether arms control treaties actually always stabilize an international situation. But what is very clear is that we've got an arms race, certainly between the United States and China. We've got a Russia that is rapidly developing its capabilities. We've got an international situation that is tense. We've got a superpower in gentle decline and another superpower rising and we've got no framework of arms control agreements in place it does not look as a recipe for calm jonathan isle from the royal united services institute thank you for your time today this week, the former Chief of the General Staff, Lord Dannett, and others wrote to the Times newspaper asking for the Prime Minister to announce a bill to protect veterans of Northern Ireland in next Monday's Queen's speech. Well, with us is Lucy Fisher, Defence Correspondent at the Times. Hello, Lucy. Uh, protect them from what exactly? Hello. Well, I think uh, General Lord Dannett was clear. He said it's time to stop hounding former soldiers for alleged misconduct on operations in Northern Ireland now that so much time has passed. It suggests that justice will not protect them. Well, I think the problem is um, that we've seen uh, Soldier Reth being prosecuted um, last month. His case for uh, several charges of murder and attempted murder was adjourned to December. He's an army veteran in his 60s, uh, and I think there is concern that there are still uh, hundreds more veterans who could yet face the incredibly stressful cycle of reinvestigation, uh, renewed questioning, and poten potentially criminal prosecution. The general wasn't asking for the same protection for civilians. Is this because they already have protection, but the military doesn't? Well, I think the concern is that um, there is a new historical investigations unit being set up in Northern Ireland. It was something that was uh, part of the Good Friday Agreement that will look into some of the unsolved murders. And I think that there is concern that this new unit will see many uh, forces, uh, former forces uh, personnel, questioned again. And, and it's just so much time has passed. I think that there is a question about whether there could be a fair trial in the circumstances, given that these are events of decades ago now. I suppose for the families, though, who've been affected by this, they will want to see justice done no matter how long it takes. That's absolutely right. Um, and I was uh, lucky enough to uh, interview 
Johnny Mercer, the new Veterans Minister, in August. And I spoke to him about this subject. Uh, as we all know, it's something he feels passionately about, trying to protect veterans um, from the scourge of potentially vexatious claims or repeated investigation. But he was the first to acknowledge that uh, he, his awareness that, you know, if you're a mother in Northern Ireland and your son was, was murdered, you are going to be watching this debate very carefully. It was interesting to me that he uh, very much steered away from the idea of an amnesty. That's that's one proposed solution to this, mm. just to say, let's draw a line under it all. He felt that that was a deeply inflammatory idea because there are victims who are still seeking justice. Christopher Liard, Ben Salas is listening um, to this. Uh, Lucy, isn't it, isn't it the fact that um, for some civilians, uh, at a certain time period, a more recent time time period, anything before that period is not investigated now? Well, um, I, I think when there are statutes of limitations in place, they are always there's always the ability for judges uh, in exceptional circumstances to, to, um, to waive that statute of limitations. I think it's interesting that MPs um, have put on the table the idea of a qualified statute of limitations to cover uh, veterans. That would mean that there would be a presumption against prosecution around about 10 years after an alleged offence has taken place unless, and this is the crucial caveat, there is genuinely new and compelling evidence. And, and, and accepting Northern Ireland, as I understand it. Well, no, I'm sorry, uh, that, is a, that, that is a proposal that is on the table at the moment. Um, you're right, for overseas conflicts that would uh, protect potentially uh, veterans of Afghanistan and Iraq. But uh, Julian Lewis and his uh, Commons Defence Committee are calling for a st- qualified statute of limitations to apply to the Troubles as well. Do you see in all of the arguments being put forward on this subject, because there are extremely uh, strong passions on either side, any way to keep everyone happy? I don't, to be honest. It's it's not an easy um, problem to, to solve. And that's clear from the fact that, you know, numerous um, successive defence secretaries from Michael Fallon to Gavin Williamson to Penny Mordaunt um, have, you know, pledged to try and grapple with it and, and, and protect veterans. And yet we, we haven't seen anything um, that's come to the, to the table as a workable solution, particularly the current situation is complicated by the fact that the Conservative government is relying on the DUP and they obviously have a vested interest um, in this very um, febrile and emotive subject. We have to remember also because the military go into, say, let us say Northern Ireland, in certain different circumstances than the, than the civilian goes into action in that same place. And the, the it goes into, the military go into with the uh, with the request of the government as an aid to the civil power. It has the uh, legal opinion for, uh, through the Attorney General uh, to do. It has it, it has recurring terms of reference, etc. Yes. And that makes it so much harder for the for the military to be able to get or or, or to expect a separate type of condition for any prosecution, in any investigation, in fact. You're absolutely right. Um, that that is one of the the, the key problems here um, and I don't see uh, an easy way around it even this idea of a you know qualified statute of limitations there's always the ability to waive that if new evidence comes to light and um, and we are all the time seeing seeing new evidence and there are many lawyers on the ground who are still speaking to um, you know eyewitnesses there in some of these events so so this new evidence is still recurring all right, Lucy Fisher, defence correspondent at the Times. Thank you for your time today. 
Now, at least two people were killed this week in a shooting near a synagogue in the German city of Halle. A gunman opened fire outside the building where up to 80 people were marking Yom Kippur, the holiest day in the Jewish calendar. Uh, Christopher, in the UK, we're used to violence 30 years of the Troubles in Northern Ireland and attacks in more recent times. Is it fair to say, though, we take this kind of thing in our stride, whereas the Germans have deeper anxieties that won't go away? It's a difficult observation, is the fact that Germany or the German people, quite often you find they remain guilty of a past which is in herself, not in the individuals. Uh, And the fact that Chancellor Merkel uh, was in the town immediately and went to the vigil Mm. with the uh, rabbis uh, shows the sensitivity of it. It 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 is inexplicable in any other any other uh, state in the whole of Europe. And you see this as something that leads you to wondering about the depth of anxieties affecting NATO as an alliance. I just think we have to sometimes look at a country and members of NATO, say 27, 28 members of NATO, and look at them and see what's beneath the skin, what the things that bother them. We've got it today. You know, Turkey in a military and political conflict with all almost all other alliance states. These are members of NATO. Germany, the anti-Semitic thing, is always there, and it appears not in a political draft, but in individual anxieties. The United States, Trumpism. Uh, the Italians talk of being, being let down by other people. Uh, France, Gilet and weak government, if that's what it is. Uh, and then the United Kingdom, just yes. about to uh, <laughs> get on its moped and go in a different direction. You know, these are members of NATO, and they have deep, 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 movable uh, in interests which they can't control themselves. And that is it for this week. My thanks to all of our guests and to you for listening. If you'd like to listen again, you can subscribe to our podcast. Just search for SITREP. We'll be back again same time next week from me, Kate Chabot. Bye-bye for now. <laughs>